0: And welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC.
1: Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people.
0: I'm Seffi Kogan.
1: And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman.
0: AJC has been clear about the potential consequences of Israeli annexation of parts of the West Bank. But we aren't the only ones making our concerns known. Representative Ted Deutsch organized a group of 191 members of Congress, all of them friends of Israel, to write a letter to Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister Netanyahu. In it, they warn against unilateral actions in general on the part of either the Israelis or the Palestinians, and specifically caution against annexation. Congressman Deutsch joins us now to talk about why he felt it was important to send this letter and what the future holds for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Congressman Deutsch, thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you, Sethi. Thanks. So
0: first off, why was it important to you and your colleagues to send this letter, this letter with 191 signatures of members of Congress, which is both a sort of love letter to Israel and also a rebuke about this possible action? Why was it so important to so many of you
2: to weigh in like this? It was important to start with, as you point out, to start with A group coming from a a place of love and a a place of deep appreciation for everything that Israel is and Israel represents. And as someone who has been a lifelong Zionist, we wanted just to be sure that there was an understanding of of how we felt about this. And that was why it was so important to to go on record as strong defenders of Israel in Congress and as a group that's really committed to a two-state solution. Mm -hmm.
0: Some of Israel's most ardent defenders are making the case that annexation, what's the big deal? You know, Israel annexed the Golan Heights in 1981, but in 2000 and then again in 2008, before we all realized how terrible Assad was, there were talks between Israel and Syria uh, about potentially returning the Golan Heights to Syria in exchange for for peace. Would annexation, uh, some kind of partial annexation of the West Bank, would that really be uh, you know, the end of the two-state solution, as many have been warning?
2: Well, it's a question of what does the two-state solution look like? No one is suggesting that we're now at a moment where we're right at the at the cusp of reaching a, a long-strived-for negotiated two-state settlement. That's impossible, two-state solution. That's impossible when, when the, the Palestinians aren't at the table uh, and won't come to the table. We're not at that point. And further, do we believe that, Malau love to me, that the settlement blocks somehow pose an impediment to peace? Of course not. And of course we ought to be considering Israel's security first and foremost But the question is, how do we do that? And by taking this action right now, not just about the settlement blocks potentially, but about every enclave, every settlement in the entire Jordan Valley, then it begs the larger question of what does the two-state solution look like? And there's one plan on the table now. And even as we can debate whether the Trump plan leads to a viable Palestinian state, it does actually envision a Palestinian state. And this discussion about annexation has taken place completely outside even of that portion of this Trump peace plan, which is why I, as an ardent Zionist and ardent defender of Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship, um, have concerns about an action like this right now.
0: You mentioned some of the actions of the PA, like, for example, how the Palestinian Authority and Hamas are talking about reconciling, which seems to happen every few years, uh, the talks and nothing ever comes of it. The PA also, though, released their own kind of peace proposal, sketchy outline of a peace proposal as someone who thinks a lot about foreign policy, about the U.S.'s relationship, about the two state solution. Did you see that as kind of a, a serious offering from the Palestinian side? What would be the
2: serious commitment on the Palestinian side is a return to the negotiating table. That's how peace is to be achieved the Trump peace plan contemplates that. Those of us who have advocated for two-state solution recognize that.
0: You mentioned successive administrations before you mentioned the Trump peace plan. President Bush pushed the two-state solution quite firmly. President Trump certainly makes references to it. But no Republicans signed the letter. Were you interested in seeing this become a bipartisan effort? Or did you think that that was never realistic?
2: It raises sort of the larger point, Sethi, which is the efforts by some to view this as a a partisan issue which it clearly isn't there were 191 people who signed the letter uh, there are over 200 members of Congress who have expressed their concern about annexation and that includes as as you referred to some of the most ardent uh, defenders of Israel and at the same time there was a uh, another letter that was circulated uh, among Republicans but no I firmly believe that the relationship needs to remain bipartisan unfortunately, we're now at the point as we head into the home stretch of this election where so much has become partisan or characterized as such when that's really not the case.
0: There were several Democrats, as you alluded to, who didn't sign the letter. A letter went around last week initiated by Representatives Ocasio Cortez, Tlaib, McCollum, and Jayapal addressed to Secretary of State Pompeo and calling for the U.S. to condition security assistance to Israel should Israel go ahead with annexation. Their 12 signatures pale in comparison to your 191, But I mean, you'll know this history much better than I do. But when I think of conditioning aid to Israel, I think of that as the kind of thing that Representative McCollum was the only person beating the drum for for years. And now it it almost feels like overnight there are 12 members who will attach their names to something like that. And there may be more come November. Are you
2: worried about that? I actually think it's really important for those of us who understand why it's not. And I'd start, by the way, with Vice President Biden. Those of us who understand, and he is the the Democratic nominee or will be the Democratic nominee for president, understand why that's not in the best interest of the United States and why putting Israel's security at risk doesn't do anything to strengthen the United States. So, yes, uh, am I sorry to see a dozen members sign on to a, a letter like that? Of course I am. Should we be focused on that number instead of the close to 400 members who voted to condemn BDS, the huge majority that voted to reinforce over 400 members who voted to speak out, I should say, uh, the overwhelming majority of Democratic members who came together to speak out in support of a two-state solution and the ironclad commitment to Israel's security, that number relative to what happened when my legislation that takes the security assistance in the MOU which is the largest package ever negotiated between the United States and Israel and puts it into statute for the first time my legislation passed unanimously so those are more representative of where the democratic party is and the the goal is frankly to as always to try to help educate members it's up to the rest of us to point to the fact that that uh, BDS is economic warfare against Israel that is ultimately founded in anti-Semitism, and that those who advocate for a a one-state solution are taking a position that is far outside the mainstream as it's existed, as you point out, for multiple administrations. What are the most
0: effective ways for ordinary pro-Israel Americans to influence their representatives on this issue?
2: I think it starts with acknowledging, for my colleagues, for those members of Congress, their position as laid out in these resolutions condemning BDS and supporting security assistance, their positions as laid out in the legislation that expands U.S.-Israel cooperation, that those positions are in America's best interest and that we value them for holding those positions. And then that leads naturally into a question of why and why support for Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship again is, is critical for the us israel relationship, and how much we can learn from each other and share with one another to advance our shared values and our shared interests.
0: I should ask, by the way, your letter was addressed to Prime Minister Netanyahu, to Defense Minister Gantz, uh, and to Foreign Minister Ashkenazi. Do you have any indication from any of them as to how the letter was received in Israel?
2: We know that these conversations are ongoing. One of the other things, Sefi, that I think it's important for us to, to recognize is beyond what we talked about in the letter. There are two other things happening right now. One, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is ravaging Israel just as it's ravaging the United States now. And look at what's happened with Iran over these past few weeks. So you had this explosion in the tons and these advanced centrifuges that were disrupted. And that's at a time when the world is refocusing on the ways that Iran has violated the JCPOA We have an opportunity to come together for America to lead our allies in working to strengthen the JCPOA and in working to isolate Iran as they continue to move forward on their quest that brought the world together in the first place. And so I don't want to lose any opportunity to tackle these very serious threats by being sidetracked with something that might interfere with Israel's ability to to really defend herself with the full support and unflinching support of not just the United States, which Israel will always have, but by countries all throughout the region and throughout the world.
0: We're in this moment now where the loudest voices on the right are saying, annex the West Bank, show the Palestinians they've lost, then there's going to be peace. The loudest voices on the left are saying, the time for the two-state solution is past, We need a one-state solution, one state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea with a protected Jewish minority. That's the really just solution. All of those loud voices amount to a cacophony of people calling for one state. Why are all those people wrong?
2: Well, I know there's been some discussion that's just now started about the origins of Zionism and whether the Jewish people were seeking statehood. Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. It is the only nation state of the Jewish people. And for those on the left who see an opportunity to try to advance an idea that Israel should no longer exist as a Jewish state, that flies in the face of everything that we have fought for and frankly is contrary to the way every other country in the world is treated. And likewise, on the right, the idea is that Israel, as a Jewish state, should be the strong and secure home of the Jews, and that ultimately everything we do should work, certainly from where I sit in Congress, should work to, uh, to strengthen Israel and give Israel the ability, as we've said time and time again, to defend herself by herself. And that means working toward two-state solutions. For those of us who are proud Zionists, that Jewish state that we are so proud of, a Jewish state that we work to defend, a Jewish state that sometimes we have questions about certain policies and as friends, I think, can have these, these kinds of discussions, that's a Jewish state that needs to be strengthened, not weakened. Let me just
0: say, Congressman Deutsch, from those of us here in uh, the New York area where we feel like we've kind of gotten through our our first wave of the virus, that our hearts go out to you and uh, everyone in Florida where you're still kind of in the thick of it, thank you so much for joining us here today on People of
2: the Pod. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Sethi. The American
0: Jewish political commentator Peter Beinart made waves last week when he published an essay in an online publication, followed up by an op-ed in the New York Times and an interview on CNN, calling for the end to Israel as a Jewish state. This was noteworthy because Beinart has long been a vocal liberal Zionist, extremely critical of Israel, but committed to the Jewish national project. One of the best rejoinders to his essay came from American-Israeli intellectual Dr. Daniel Gordas, the Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Jerusalem's Shalem College. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, you've engaged pretty deeply with Peter Beinert's piece, and uh, I think you're a pretty charitable debater. So I wonder if I could impose upon you, if you don't mind, starting off by summarizing his argument. In your words, what is Beinert's case, or or what is perhaps the best case version of Beinert's case?
3: The best case version of the long piece, which is like 7,000 words, is that because Israel has shown that it will never be able to conduct itself in a moral way vis-a-vis the Palestinians as a Jewish state. The Jews should go out of the state-making business, form some sort of confederation or something that would be called Israel-Palestine, where Israelis and Palestinians would have equality, and we will build a much better future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And his piece, the, the, the longer piece, is entitled Yavne, which is a Talmudic analogy. Can you just kind of elucidate for our listeners, what
3: is he referencing
0: there for people who don't get the
3: reference? He's referencing a story in the Talmud where after the Second Temple is destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was one of the leaders at that time, is smuggled out of Jerusalem in a coffin. And to make a long story short, he's eventually brought to the Roman general. And the Roman general basically says, okay, after because he makes a prediction that he's going to become emperor. Um, he says, wow, you were really onto something. What wish can I fulfill for you? And he says, tenli ad yavnev et chachameha. Give me Yavne and its sages, meaning Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai understood that Jewish sovereignty was over. The Romans had destroyed Jerusalem, and that was the end of that. But the least he could do was try to perpetuate the Jewish people by having an academy, which would be the seat of Jewish learning and therefore give Jewish life, a new lease on life. And then Peter, of course, is saying, look, Rabbi Yochanan Benzak, I said, we can live without autonomy. We can live without sovereignty. We can live with some kind of you know, spiritual center. Let's do the same thing all over again. You wrote a powerful rejection of Peter Beinert's argument, which
0: I encourage our listeners to read. We'll link to it in the show notes for this podcast episode. What was it about Peter's argument that didn't sit well with you?
3: I actually tried to focus on what I thought was the utter intellectual dishonesty of the piece. Uh, I felt that he quoted things out of context. Uh, He gave partial quotes. Uh, He just basically assumed that the reader didn't know anything. So he'll say that, you know, Zionism was never about Jews having a state. It was always about a Jewish home. Uh, Yeah, but at the first Zionist Congress already in 1897, there were calls for a Jewish state. And by the time it was 1930s, everybody understood that the Jews would never be safe in Palestine or anywhere else, quite frankly, without a Jewish state. And the major thing, though, I think that's really problematic. He basically says we should get out of the state-making business because states are nasty and states are messy and power is corrupting. And the Jews have shown that they can never handle power vis-a-vis the Palestinians in a fair way. I am also very critical of lots of things that Israel does and has done. I'm hardly one of those people who suggests that Israel has conducted itself impeccably. But here's what I would say. Look, there's no way that America is going to completely fix its race problem. We all understand that. It's been around for 400 years, and it's not going anywhere. So why doesn't America get out of the state making business first, right? Why don't you become 50 different states or 1,000 different counties or whatever it is? See how that works out for you. We'll be number two. But why do Jews always expect that the Jews should be the first to take on those kinds of responsibilities? It feels treasonous to me, quite frankly. What do we do with this?
0: How do we treat a non-serious argument seriously when it appears to be resonating
3: like that? You know, organizations that are serious organizations, and we won't name them, but the, the people that run the American Jewish community, the synagogues and the federations and the JCCs and the big national organizations, I don't know the answer to your question. But I would say, here's the question that I would ask about your question. Are there lines that a person cannot cross and still be considered part of the people with whom we will have a discourse? I personally believe that if in 2020, given what the world looks like, you actually advocate as an alleged supporter of the Jewish people that we should be the first to make ourselves vulnerable, there is something so problematic with that. Because I don't believe in cancel culture, and I don't believe in not listening to people that I disagree with. But if there are no lines that matter, I'm not quite sure what we stand for anymore. And if saying that the Jews should not have their own state after everything we've been through doesn't cross that line, I don't really know what does. Now, your most recent book is entitled We
0: Stand Divided, and our listeners can find it wherever books are sold. In it, you focus on what you say is a growing rift between American Jews and Israel. And we've talked a little bit about this now. What is the source of that? rift and why don't american jews think about israel in the same way that israelis think about themselves
3: well i mean we could do a responsive reading of the whole book but let's just kind of boil it down quickly (laughs) what i think is not the cause of the rift is the conflict in other words i'm not suggesting that the conflict is not a critically important issue for israel just morally on its own or that it's not a huge issue for american jews it is But the reason the book was so controversial among the American Jewish left is because I didn't blame the whole thing on the occupation. And that was a kind of a violation of a certain political orthodoxy that didn't fly very well with the New York Times and other august publications, uh, be that as it may. But I think that there's at least two reasons. Number one is uh, that American Judaism is fundamentally a universalist community young American Jews are much more comfortable advocating for the rights of others or for humanity at large than they are advocating for their own rights as Jews. They're just not comfortable doing it. Uh, Israel is not entirely a non-universalist project, but it's certainly overwhelmingly a particularist project. It's sort of, to paraphrase Lincoln, of the Jews, by the Jews, and for the Jews because of our history. And as a result, I think this idea just makes young American Jews very uncomfortable. Don't forget that young American Jews are very uncomfortable with the ideas of Jews being a people. And religions don't have states. Peoples have states. So the minute I, as a young progressive, think of the Jews as a religion or a culture or whatever, but not a people, then by virtue of what do I actually have A state It makes no sense. So I think there's the universal particular. And then I think also, you know, Israeli Judaism and American Judaism have just grown in very, very different directions. I have freshmen at Shalem College every year who was we sit and get chatting. They're 23, 24. They've been in the Israeli army. They were officers. They're not exactly uncommitted to the Jewish people, but they've never, ever, ever stepped foot in a synagogue. They don't actually know what the inside of one looks like or what happens inside it. There's very few American Jews who can make that claim. There's very few American Christians in certain cities who can make that claim because they've been (laughs) invited to bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and weddings, whatever. Israeli Judaism is developing in a very different way. It's not non-religious. There's a lot of religious Jews here, but it is really a kind of a grand experiment in a revitalization of Jewish literacy culture language literature poetry art nationalism a kind of a new form of jewish ritual which is partially national partially religious and so on and so forth and i think american jews through no fault of their own don't understand the language in which this is all happening so it's all very opaque to them the only thing that they really have access to is the political conflict stuff which is not unimportant here in israel but it doesn't carry anywhere near the same Weight or percentage of the pie that it carries in America.
0: I just want to close where we started by evaluating some elements of Peter's argument. You know, he has kind of become an avatar, a hero for a lot of my peers, young Jews in their 20s and 30s who are involved in groups like If Not Now. If anti-Israel is too strong of a term, then, you know, exceedingly Israel skeptical people, you know, what would you say to a young person like that who earnestly believes that the occupation is the single, you know, most critical problem for them as a Jew to tackle?
3: Uh, I would say to that position is if you think that the occupation is one of the most profound injustices in the world today, you really got to start reading the newspaper. Or I mean I'm not a, a huge fan of the occupation. Don't get me wrong. But if you think that the occupation is one of the gravest moral injustices in the world today, you are actually an ignorant fool. I mean I know those are strong words, and we don't talk that way in America. But that's why I live in Israel, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> um, now it's a huge moral issue for Israel, and we should figure it out because it's not good. I my kids were all in the army. Now they weren't necessarily in the West Bank, but the larger generation of my kids, I understand from their friends and their friends' friends, this is very, very complicated stuff. And I hear from my students at Shalem all the time, stories that are really painful to listen to. So I'm under no illusion that it's a picnic out there. It's not. But one of the people who runs, if not now, is the son or daughter of one of my longest lifelong friends. Uh, and I say to this person, uh, so-and-so, you know, I get it. I I actually also don't like the occupation. Tell me, what should we do? And this person says to me, we're not policy people. Those are the exact words. We're not policy people. Now, this person is a summa cum laude graduate of an Ivy League college. And what I say to this person is, you know, but if you would actually give it in a paper in an economics department and said, I think we should abolish taxes as for how we're going to pay for anything. I don't know. I'm not a policy person. Um, the professor would have said, you're also not a passing grade person. Like, here's an F, enjoy <laughs> it, right? I mean, there's a certain thing that comes with adulthood, which is about asking yourself, what are the implications of statements that I make? That's why it's very hard to take them seriously. Okay, I'm opposed to the occupation too. Now tell me what I should do. Tell me what I should do when Hamas is still where Hamas is, where Hezbollah now has arms that can reach every single inch of Israel with relative precision, where the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas still insists that there was no second temple as a way of making it clear that the Jews are basically just the latest version of the crusaders. The crusaders are gone, the Ottomans are gone, the British are gone, and the Jews will be gone. And if you say, ah, that's just words... That's like saying in America, oh, people who say bad things about African-Americans, it's just words. That's ridiculous. In America, we take words very seriously now, as I think we should. So why don't we take the words of Palestinians equally seriously and believe them when they say what we want to do is destroy not only the state, but many of the people who live there unless they're willing to leave. Again, why one would believe certain things and not other things, it seems to me, is just it's kind of intellectually childish, and it's it's irresponsible. So what I would say is that's where Peter could have done great good. If Peter was actually willing to say, as a Jew, this is painful for me, and watching the occupation is really mortifying for me, and it's embarrassing. First, I want to actually hear from 50 Israelis who are not pundits, who are not journalists, who are not this or that. I just want to go on the street and talk to people. What do you guys think, and how are you not troubled by this? And then translate what they have to say into English and whatever engender that kind of a conversation to show that not every Israeli who doesn't think we should pull out right away is actually a malevolent, racist, horrible human being, but just doesn't know what to do. Uh, I think that doesn't get you on Farid Zachariah, that's for sure. And it doesn't get you as many hits in Jewish currents as he got, that's for sure. But I think it would be much more responsible, quite frankly, and I think that would position you well within the tent of the Jewish community and asking, how do we make ourselves the best possible people and the most moral state that we possibly can be? That's of great concern to me also. And I'm very open to all the critique. I'm just not very open to imagining that this new organization created out of the Palestinian security forces and the IDF has my back. I think that's ludicrous. And if they have my back in any way, it's with a target on my back. And I think deep, deep, deep down, Peter has to know that. I find it very hard to believe he doesn't actually understand that, which is why I, I get my, I, I get so saddened by this because it, it really feels like more like a betrayal than a disagreement.
0: Well, that kind of common sense might not get you the invite onto Fareed Zakaria, but it does get you invited onto AJC's People of the Pod. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
3: Good luck and good health to everybody.
1: French Rabbi Delphine Orvilleur is one of only four female rabbis in France and heads a progressive congregation but she stands out in other ways as well. She has appeared on the cover of French Elle magazine. She applies psychoanalytic and literary thought to her biblical interpretations. And in a very secular France, she has drawn thousands to a wide-ranging, multi-faith virtual conversation about racism and anti-Semitism. Rabbi Oivillard joined AJC for an Advocacy Anywhere session last week, which you can still watch on AJC.org. But now she's back in our virtual studio for a slightly different conversation. Rabbi, bienvenue. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So could you please explain for our listeners the concept of laïcité in France and and how that shapes public conversations there, specifically conversations about anti-Semitism and racism?
4: Okay, I will try to, but it could lead us to like hours and even years of conversation because (laughs) the, the word laïcité is almost impossible to translate into English. Very often we say, you know, French version of secularism. But it's really what I often call a a kind of lost-in-translation concept, because um, to explain um, laïcité to an American audience requires to go back to elements of French uh, history. Um, French and American society are strongly based on the idea of uh, respecting freedom and honoring freedom. But the French history of uh, freedom, especially when it comes to religion is different from the American heritage. I would say that America strengthens and cherishes the idea of freedom of religion, whereas uh, French history somehow is built, and especially the the idea of the French Republic is built upon the concept of freedom from religion. Like the French Republic guarantees its citizens that uh, they will never be imposed upon them the weight of their belonging their ethnicity and their religion but the state guarantees that you will always be able to speak in the first person singular as an individual doesn't matter where you comes from what is your color your religion and your ethnicity there's a kind of protection of the individual against sometimes his birth or his belonging so as you see it's almost like a an opposite history with the American uh, uh, history of relationships between state and religion. So we Mm -hmm. need to take this into consideration to understand the current situation in France. The way America discusses um, today racism or politics of identity, or etc., comes on a very, very different uh, background. In France, it's almost impossible... To imagine that people will speak in the name of their community of belongings. It would be a, like a question mark or a threat upon the, you know, the very you know, basis of the nation. We never speak as members of communities. We speak as individuals with uh, multiple identities mixed inside ourselves, but it mm. creates a very, very different uh, national um, ethos, national discourse and discussion upon identity and religions.
1: Does this explain why conversations about gentlemen who wear kippah or women who wear hijabs it's a little bit different when you hear about rules or regulations that you know, prevent them or prohibit them from wearing those especially if they're government employees you know people in America you know, are, are jarred when they hear those kinds of conversations. But it sounds like the concept of laïcité, that's precisely why those kinds of rules and regulations would exist there, right?
4: Yeah, it's very, very different history. In France, you know, there is a history that religions try to impose themselves on, you know, and it was the case for, the, you know, the Catholic weight on French society for so many centuries. Basically, to say it differently, we want to make sure that religion doesn't take too much room in the public realm, in the public landscape in France. So it's the laïcité wants to keep a kind of, you know, an, a room empty of believings and of faith ah. and of affiliation and of religious identity. So this is the kind of the neutral ground that needs to remain neutral. Mm-hmm.
1: So does that limit the conversations you can have on anti-Semitism and racism?
4: No, I I don't think it does. I think on the contrary, it should not. And it should even be key to fight both racism and anti-Semitism because the nation should feel committed to fight those hates as a nation, as a group. Anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia needs to be fought together. And it's very, very important to realize that you don't have to be a Jew to fight anti-Semitism. It's actually because we are able to create a sacred space, not in a religious meaning, but truly as a as a nation, a space there where there is room for others, as long as we recognize that what we share is much bigger than what makes our differences.
1: So I'm curious if you've found during this pandemic period, I, I know you're doing a weekly Zoom call where you uh, open invitation Tuesday nights where people come to you and have for, for philosophical conversations, perhaps religious conversations. And I'm curious if you found that people are more open, especially during this pandemic period, to kind of injecting faith and community into these discussions. Well, I, I was actually struck to
4: see, you know, we, we started during the confinement here in France to launch this weekly meeting through a magazine I lead called Noah. We organized a weekly, what we could call in Hebrew, a bet Midrash, like a house of study. And very fast, I noticed like thousands and thousands of people joined. And I think he told something about a need that exists today among, I think, all of us to, in this moment of discontinuity, in this moment where sometimes nothing makes sense around us, to find in the particular storytellings and uh, heritage, a possibility to make sense of, uh, or to nourish the way we will make sense of the world around us. And I think Judaism has a lot to teach about this because Judaism um, believes in the power of uh, storytelling uh, very, very strongly. The idea that the story we pass from generation to generation have the capacity to be reinterpreted in new context. And when suddenly there's such a huge crisis around us, it creates like a possibility really to reinterpret our heritage and our text and give it new powerful meanings.
1: You know, um, I'm curious what you have witnessed are the sources of anti-Semitism there in France. Is there, and perhaps it's multiple sources from your vantage point. I'm just curious what you've witnessed.
4: Well, You know, anti-Semitism comes from very, very different, um, I would say, political realms and background. People notice in recent years that Anti-Semitism comes from the good old uh, extreme right discourse, but sometimes it comes from the left, the anti-Zionist left, and sometimes it, calls from a certain, it comes from a certain Muslim theological uh, background, uh, or sometimes from a Christian theological background. It can come from really different uh, different sides. But what I noticed, what I noticed, and this is what I explored in one of my books through the rabbinic lens and the Jewish text lens, is that. Anti-Semitism is always uh, the expression of um, an inability by someone or by a group to deal with otherness, to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, um, uh, we live with the other, that sometimes even there is something in us that is not pure. Basically, what the rabbis teach us is that each time a society or an individual, becomes obsessed with its identity, its close identity, its authenticity, its purity, purity of body or purity of mind or ideas, you can be pretty sure that very soon the hate of Jews will be on the rise. Because the Jew is always the name, even when Jews are not around, it has nothing to do with the presence of Jews. The Jew becomes the symbolic name of what prevents you from being yourself. And it has been true all along history.
1: Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned this, you, you co-authored a book, A Thousand Ways to Be Jewish or Muslim, uh, with a French-Moroccan political scientist, Rashid Benzine. I'm curious how that book came about. So Rashid is
4: actually a good friend of mine, and um, everything started with the conversation we had after the Charlie Hebdo attack. We connected very strongly, and both of us noticed that uh, we became it's going to sound weird, but we became only a Jew and a Muslim, which means, you know, each one of us is built on multiple identity. I'm a woman. I'm a Parisian. I, I you know, I, I used to live in America and I have children. I, you know, I I mean, I could define myself in many, many ways or in different words. But what happened suddenly in this time of identity crisis is that people expected me to be just a Jew. Like, you know, each time I was saying something, they expected me to be to speak in the name of Judaism or my Jewish identity and to simplify in a very impoverishing way who I am. And he experienced the same thing as a Muslim. Suddenly what he was thinking, what he was eating, what he was voting was somehow, you know, somehow filtered by his Muslim identity. And we decided to we write together a book to explain uh, there are a thousand ways to define who we are and there are a thousand ways that our Jewish or Muslim identity enters in a dialogue with other elements of who we are, and we decided really to break this terrible and impoverishing uh, definitions of ourselves that, unfortunately, our time pushes us, you know, in that direction. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I- I'm curious, at least from a French perspective, what stands in the way of of Muslim Jewish dialogue today? I mean, does each tradition, both Islam and Judaism, offer something to build and, and heal that relationship?
4: Well I think there today Israel serves as a like smoke screen you know it, it, mm. it many people believe that because of Israel and the Israeli Palestinian conflict uh, uh, something of the Jewish Muslim dialogue is impossible today and I think it's a it's a mistake but it's very very difficult to go beyond this uh, uh, smoke screen but I think that the texts can help us and this is what I try to do with uh, with uh, Rashid Benzin we we studied together texts, histories, heritage.
1: Well, this was a wonderful conversation. We are out of time. But Rabbi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation again.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Dr. Ari Gordon, AJC's U.S. Director of Muslim-Jewish Relations. Ari, when you're talking with your family and friends at your
5: Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thanks, Sefi. I'm going to be talking about Sudan. This week, the democratic government of Sudan abolished a number of laws, including laws against apostasy, female genital mutilation, bans on uh, the drinking of alcohol for non-Muslims. And I'm going to be talking about it because it's an inspiring change. I remember in 2006 as a college student, going to a rally in Washington for the part of the Save Darfur coalition to stop the ethnic cleansing of the population at the hands of Omar al-Bashir. Bashir had been in power since 1989, and just in 2019, he was overthrown by peaceful, not military, protests. And since that time, the democratic government has done a lot of outreach to Jews, increased religious freedom, and even reached out to Israel. We're 25 years of the anniversary of the genocide against Bosnian Muslims at Srebrenica. And we think about the horrible things that go on in the world. And the ray of light that's coming from an Arab country in North Africa is making me think that hope is possible, change is possible. And in these dark times, looking for a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of light.
0: I recall the same rally, I think of you and I as roughly the same age, but for me, that 2006 rally was, I was beginning of my time in high school, but it was, it was deeply moving as well. Manya, what are you going to be talking about at your Shabbat table?
1: Sefi, Ari, I grew up part of the time in North Carolina, part of the time in Waco, Texas, where most of the city was Baptist and a tiny fraction was Jewish. So tiny a fraction, I wasn't sure there were any other Jews in Waco. There were, of course. In fact, Seffi, I think you were the one who first told me we had an AJC colleague from Waco. He and I have since met and swapped stories about our childhoods, but he had a very different experience than me. I didn't really grow up Jewish with the exception of Passover seders hosted at my grandparents' house. It just wasn't something my family liked to broadcast. If you weren't Baptist, you were going to hell. End of story. So, I became more and more curious about my Jewish identity, or lack thereof, as I learned about our family history. I thought perhaps as a religion reporter, I could serve a greater purpose as a journalist and teach people a thing or two about religions other than their own so other little girls didn't have to hide their faith. I came to discover three things how little I knew about other religious traditions, how the actions of some in one tradition do not define the rest and that the differences within religious traditions can be more divisive and damaging than the differences between them. This was true in the Catholic Church, Protestant Christianity, Islam, and, yes, Judaism. Entering the world of Jewish advocacy, I've been reminded of these lessons. I now work for an organization that prides itself on building alliances and coalitions. We have Jewish partners all over the world, and we also have non-Jewish partners— I love that no one here judges me, except for Seffi occasionally, but no one here judges me because I wasn't raised particularly Jewish. We all meet each other where we're at. Alas, I am not too terribly surprised by the recent attacks on our colleague, Holly Huffnagel, our new director for combating anti Semitism here in America. She is an evangelical Christian with an incredible academic and professional record of fighting Holocaust denial, Holocaust revisionism, and other forms of anti-Semitism. Listeners of last week's episode heard her masterfully explain the origins of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But last weekend, former Democratic presidential candidate Howard Dean tweeted, Unfortunately, Christians don't have much a reputation for anything but hate these days, thanks to Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell and other Trump friends. AJC gets no points for this. I didn't know we were after points, but surely even Howard Dean knows Graham and Falwell do not represent all evangelical Christians. And then if not now, another Jewish organization, another Jewish organization went after AJC with this. We welcome allies in the fight for Jewish safety, but it should be obvious that white Christians should not be leading Jewish organizations' advocacy against anti-Semitism. Obvious? Should it be? Or should it be obvious that's exactly who should be leading the charge? Anti-Semitism is not a Jewish issue. It is not just a threat to Jews. It's a threat to our democracy. It's a threat to all of us. As a religion reporter, I learned a lot about evangelical Christianity and other faiths that challenged my assumptions. And I know I have a lot more to learn from Holly. I think we all do. And I see nothing wrong and everything right about naming her our ambassador. So religious differences and why they matter. That is what we will talk about at our Shabbat table. Sefi?
0: Well, I was called out this week by someone in my family for not bringing up at our Shabbat table something that I said in this segment I would bring up. <laughs> the truth is, when we conceived of this segment, Manya, you know, I had these hours-long Shabbat meals with at least a dozen friends and family members present. Every topic under the sun came up. Uh, but pandemic life, of course, is different. So in an effort to recapture some of that wide-ranging delight, I'm going to do a quick whip through five topics that are on my mind this week. I'm sure at least a couple of them really will come up at our Shabbat table. Number one, in her resignation letter from the New York Times this week, opinion editor Barry Weiss wrote, quote, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper. The truth is isn't a process of collective discovery but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else end quote barry is not the only one frustrated by that benighted certainty number two my go-to source when i need to look up jewish texts is a website called safaria.org From the Torah to the Talmud and countless texts of commentary and law, Safaria is a great resource for those sources. Now it's venturing into applying the same type of open-source, easily searchable, interconnected approach to America's foundational and legal texts. Who would like to be my chavruta, my study partner, for the Federalist Papers? Number three. Israel's public TV network, Khan, is out with a new docu-series called Nias, the Yiddish word for news. The program is an exploration of the Haredi media sector in Israel. I'm three episodes into the five-part series, and I am spellbound. It is at turns funny, sweet, and penetratingly informative, as when a Haredi radio host says to the interviewer in his beautiful baritone, En etika. There is no such thing as ethics in the Haredi media. Number four, sticking with media, I was thrilled to watch the trailer this week for An American Pickle, the film adaptation of a serialized New Yorker short story called Sellout by Simon Rich. In it, Seth Rogen plays a Jewish immigrant man accidentally sealed into a pickle barrel in Brooklyn around of the turn of the century, who emerges perfectly preserved 100 years later to reckon with the Brooklyn of today and to get to know his great-grandson, also played by Seth Rogen. And... Finally, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is in the hospital, recovering from a possible infection. If it's your custom to pray, have Yita Rachel Batsira Leah in your prayers. And if not, watch the fantastic biopic about her life on the basis of sex or the RBG documentary or read her 1996 AJC essay about what being Jewish means to her and keep Justice Ginsburg in your mind. I'm wishing her swift and complete healing, and we're wishing all of you a Shabbat Shalom.
1: Yes, Shabbat Shalom.
5: Shabbat Shalom.
0: You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at pod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us.
1: Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is T.K. Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.